This, 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 this is K-U-T. K-U-T. K-U-T, Austin. Stop. This is KUT Weekend for the third weekend of January 2018. Thank you for listening. I'm Nathan Bernier with KUT 90.5, the NPR station in Austin, Texas. Here's what we got for you this week. How unusual was the cold snap this week? What sticks out isn't the average, but the extreme events. Why is I-35 a double-decker through central Austin instead of just being a wider highway? The footprint of I-35 is much smaller than other highways, for example, like I-10 to central Houston. And tiny homes as a way to address housing affordability. We can bring in a great community with a great feel and it doesn't necessarily diminish the neighborhood. Those stories and more in this edition of KUT Weekend. That's the sound of me scraping ice off my car earlier this week on Tuesday so I could get to work. It was a cold one in Texas this week, and some people have been wondering how out of the ordinary is it. KUT's Mose Bouchelle has a look. I called John Nielsen Gammon. He's the state climatologist and a professor at Texas A&M. And like a lot of people, he's been feeling the chill. Apparently the A&M heating system can't keep up with this very cold weather, so my office has been in the 50s the past couple of days. But despite that, he says when it comes to average temperature for Texas, this winter isn't as much of an anomaly as you might think. Take Austin, for example. So far, since the beginning of December... Uh, Austin is running about one degree Fahrenheit below their historic average. He says what sticks out isn't the average, but the extreme events. We've had three super cold fronts push in so far this year. This is unusual, but uh, it's still not exceptional. Why is it happening? Basically, you can thank the jet stream, a current of air that divides the cooler north from the warmer south. Rich Siegel's a meteorologist with Spectrum News. He says three times this winter, the jet stream dipped further south than usual. What will happen, and this is what happened on Monday, is that a big piece of that Arctic air just started to move rather quickly through Canada, entered the United States. It reached us on Monday, and that's what gave us the huge temperature drop. Often when that happens, you hear people say something like, well, if the Earth is really warming, why is it so cold out? The president even tweeted something like that out just a few weeks ago. But Kerry Cook, a professor at UT Austin's Jackson School of Geosciences, says that demonstrates a big misunderstanding of climate. It's a local thing we have going on. It's not a global cooling. In fact, she says the cool air may be getting further south precisely because of warming in the north. So when we have melting in the Arctic, it actually warms the Arctic quite a bit. That can change the position of the jet stream. If the jet stream is coming down and dipping down over the eastern U.S., it's going to bring very cold weather with it. She says the bottom line is it's temporary. The long-term and global trend is towards warming. John Nielsen Gammon, state climatologist of Texas, Agrees. We get record cold nowadays only about uh, a fifth as frequently as we experience record warm temperatures. So the, the number of record cold days has gone way down. As far as this cold snap goes, it's already on its way out. Much of Texas will see temps in the 60s and 70s this weekend. Mose Michelle, KT News. President Trump issued a statement this week intended to honor the late Texas civil rights leader Barbara Jordan, who died 
22 years ago this week. Jordan was a Democrat. She became the first woman elected to the Texas Senate, the first African-American woman to represent Texas in the U.S. House of Representatives. Those and her many other accomplishments are why there's a statue of her at the University of Texas campus here in Austin. Back to the presidential message. It was more than just a message honoring Barbara Jordan. It was also an effort to argue that Jordan would have supported President Trump's so-called America First immigration policy. Barbara Jordan chaired the U.S. Commission on Immigration Reform in the 90s, came out with a number of recommendations. And here to talk about those is Ruth Wassum. She's a professor of public policy practice at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas. And she spent more than two decades as an immigration specialist at the U.S. Library of Congress's Congressional Research Service. Professor Wassum, thanks for your time. Oh, it's a pleasure to talk with you, Nathan. I want to start by playing for you a recommendation that Barbara Jordan made as chair of the U.S. Commission on Immigration Reform that had to do with family. And I want to get you to comment on it on the other side. The commission emphasizes nuclear family. We recommend as a priority the closest family members, spouses and minor children, of citizens, of legal immigrants, and parents of citizens are admitted as expeditiously as possible. The Trump administration has argued for ending what it calls chain migration, essentially family-based immigration, and pointed to Barbara Jordan saying she would have supported the same thing. What do you say about that? I think Barbara Jordan would be surprised to see her words being used in today's context to build this case that's being made today in that statement. Barbara Jordan was very clear in the in what you just played that uh, she supported family-based immigration, what we would call family reunification, which some people call chain migration, but family reunification is another another name for the same phenomena. What the Jordan Commission which was a commission. It wasn't just Barbara Jordan. She was reflecting the views of a a group of people that had to reach a decision. Uh, And it was a bipartisan group of immigration leaders and national figures who were part of this. The Jordan Commission didn't cut back on family-based immigration. They shifted the priorities away from more extended family, like adult children of U.S. citizens and brothers and sisters of U.S. citizens, and instead focused on immediate family, parents, minor children, that kind of thing. So it wasn't against uh, family reunification. It was shifting priorities in family reunification and may have actually been willing to slightly increase family-based immigration in order to end some of the backlogs that have existed with immediate family. This presidential message honoring Barbara Jordan also pointed to what it said was Jordan's support for a system of an employment verification system that has now become known as E-Verify. Once again, here's Barbara Jordan delivering recommendations from the commission in 1995. I urge the Congress to adopt tough policies needed to verify employment authorization. What the commission is concerned about are the unskilled workers in our society in an age in which unskilled workers have far too few opportunities open to them. When immigrants are less well-educated and less skilled, they may pose economic hardships for the most vulnerable of Americans, particularly those who are unemployed or underemployed. 
Is it accurate for the Trump administration to point to those words of Barbara Jordan and say she would support our call for a mandatory use of E-Verify nationwide? Well, you've got to remember that 20 years ago when this statement was being made, what we now call E-Verify didn't exist. So they were pushing for the creation and establishment of E-Verify, and it does exist now. Whether she would argue for the mandatory use in a context where we have not yet addressed the unauthorized population in our country, I don't know. I don't know whether she would go that far because that's at the core is when you have an employment verification system to verify workers, but you have sectors of the economy where Congress has not passed legislation legalizing these workers. So it's that's a tough rub there. The other thing to bear in mind, the Jordan Commission recommended another approach as well to low-skilled immigration, and that was increasing resources and staffing for the Department of Labor and taking a look at worksite violations and uh, employers who were not like most employers who uh, are trying to follow the law, but those who were sidestepping wage hour and immigration laws by hiring unauthorized workers and taking advantage of them. So it was part of a multi-pronged approach to dealing with employment violations, and uh, particularly among unskilled workers. During a meeting with lawmakers last week on immigration, President Trump reportedly used a derogatory term, assholes, to describe Haiti and African nations and suggested that America could use more immigrants from countries that are predominantly white, such as Norway. What would Barbara Jordan, do you think, have to say about the Trump administration's immigration proposals in as much as you can read the late Barbara Jordan's mind? Obviously, I can't divine what the great Barbara Jordan would have said, because I'm sure it would be more eloquent than what I would be able to say. I do think that she was educated and knowledgeable enough about immigration to know that for most of the 20th century, the first at least 60 years of the 20th century, we had race-based immigration policies that favored Northern Europe and Western Europe. And a lot of people, including one of her mentors, LBJ, fought to end race-based immigration in the 1965 Act. So my guess is Barbara Jordan would be standing firmly on the side of not having race-based immigration. Ruth Wassum is a professor at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas and spent more than two decades analyzing immigration policy at the U.S. Library of Congress's Congressional Research Service. Thanks for your time, Ruth. Thank you, Nathan. It was my pleasure. The Texas lieutenant governor has historically been called the strongest office in Texas state politics. But that power is not actually derived from the office itself. As we continue our Get to Know Your Statewide Offices series... KUT's Ben Philpott looks into where the lieutenant governor gets his or her power and whether it could be weakened in the future. When I moved to Austin in 2002, one of the first things I did to acclimate myself to all things Texas was visit the Bob Bullock Texas State History Museum. I remember standing up on the second floor, staring at the statue of the man whose name was chiseled on the side of the museum. 
Then I started to read his history on the plaque at the base of the statue to see, you know, just how long he'd been governor or U.S. senator. That's when I discovered he had only been lieutenant governor. Lieutenant governor is basically the vice president of the United States. The only thing he has to do is is preside over the Texas Senate, and I guess he really doesn't even have to do that if he doesn't want to, but, but all the lieutenant governors have. That's UT law professor Hugh Brady. He, of course, correctly notes that Bob Bullock was no ordinary lieutenant governor. Bullock could move mountains out of that office. But Brady says his ability to do so doesn't come from any constitutional powers. Not at all. It's derived from powers that basically either the senators themselves or the legislature has given the lieutenant governor. So the office can have as much power as a lieutenant governor can squeeze out of the state senate. Now, before we get into exactly what those powers can be, let's take a quick trip back in time to find out how the office became the most powerful position in Texas politics. The cultivation of the lieutenant governor's powers actually began back in 1973 when Bill Hobby won the office and stayed for nearly 20 years. So when Bill Hobby came here, even though he didn't have a lot of direct experience, um, his family had been involved in Texas politics for so long um, that he, he, he had a lot of advice going in early on and, and knew where to go. Hobby left the office strong, which gave Bob Bullock all the momentum he needed to make it even stronger by using his trademark style of demanding and, shall we say, enticing people into doing what he wanted. Bullock had been involved in state government for 30 years and, and as far as I know, kept a file on everybody he ever shook hands with, so he certainly knew where the bodies were buried. Brady says between Hobby and Bullock, that nearly 30-year run left the office with all the powers it needed to be the lead office in the Texas legislature. So now, on to what those powers are and why they're considered so important. First up, the lieutenant governor gets to be governor if the governor dies. And even if the governor just leaves the state for a few days. The Texas Constitution says you can't be the governor of Texas when you're not physically in the state. So when Governor Rick Perry was on the road campaigning for president back in 2011, 2012, and 2015, Lieutenant Governors David Dewhurst and Dan Patrick were acting governors. So that's nice, but Sherry Greenberg says that's not where the power of the office lies. Greenberg is a former state house member and now lecturer at the LBJ School for Public Affairs. The lieutenant governor appoints all the committee chairs of the committees in the Senate, determines where the bills are going to be sent and to what committees and, and the timing. And so this is extremely powerful. So maybe that doesn't really appear so powerful at first glance. But remember, every bill has to come through a Senate committee before reaching the Senate floor for a vote. Getting passed on the Senate floor is tough enough, but it's impossible if your bill never comes out of committee, which makes the lieutenant governor's power to pick where to send a bill very important. Again, Hugh Brady. Well, he can always send it over here, you know, to state affairs where he stacked it with his friends instead of over to, say, Health and Human Services, where maybe he doesn't have as many friends. The lieutenant governor also has power over a bill, even if it makes it out of a committee. They decide when a bill can come up for a vote and when to recognize a senator for any floor action. So lots of power, but power that Sherry Greenberg says, since it's not dictated by the Texas Constitution or even state law, can be taken away. If the members were to choose to give them make them less powerful, they could do so. All the lieutenant governor's powers derive from the rules passed by the Senate at the beginning of each legislative session. 
So each session starts with a decision by senators. How strong do we want our leader to be? I think a lot of people think that if I have the title, I have the power, and that's not the way it works in this system. But hey, play their cards right, and they could get a museum named after them. Ben Philpot, KUT News. Eight hundred thousand people brought to the U.S. as children illegally before 2007 are waiting to find out whether Congress will allow them to keep their work permits and stay in the country. There are 124,000 of these so-called dreamers in Texas, recipients of DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, setting aside the human cost of deporting those people and millions of other unauthorized immigrants. What would be the economic cost to Texas? Economist Ray Perryman of the Perryman Group in Waco just released an analysis examining that. I started by asking, what would happen to the Texas economy if all of the undocumented immigrants were deported? It would be a catastrophe for our economy. If you stop and look at it, literally, we have about 12 million people working in Texas right now, and about 1.2 million of them, that is one out of every 10, are undocumented. They're over 30% of our construction workforce. They're about half our agricultural workforce. And so literally, some of the core things that go on in Texas all the time we simply wouldn't be able to do. I mean, we don't have enough unemployed people in the state or, or any other source of labor. So so while we certainly need to reform the way we deal with these folks and have some changes, we need to have access to that labor pool. If the 124,000 recipients of DACA work permits in Texas were deported, how would that affect the state's economy? Well, again, you have a very significant impact. And I think one thing that is particularly interesting with the DACA uh, kids is a lot of them are in highly skilled jobs in high demand. I mean, a lot of them have completed their education and grown up here, and many of them in technology occupations and things of that nature. I've, I've had the privilege of meeting several of them in recent months that are truly amazing individuals. And so in addition to what we think of as a lot of the undocumented workers, you have some very, very skilled workers in this group as well. What is your response to the argument coming from members of the Trump administration and elsewhere that undocumented immigrants help keep wages down by offering a cheap supply of labor for businesses that would otherwise have to increase wages to attract employees? You know, with all due respect to those folks, the math just doesn't work. Uh, Number one, with our demographics in this country and the aging of our population, we simply don't have the bodies. I mean, if you look at the country right now, we have an unemployment rate that's below 4%. I mean, that's full employment by any reasonable definition. And we have over 6 million job openings, more than any point in our history. So we have basically everyone that's available in the workforce working, more openings than we've ever had. We simply don't have the bodies to fill this. It's a demographic issue that we have to find ways to deal with, and we're finding a lot of ways to do it. One of them is increasing technology and substituting capital for labor. One is trying to encourage people to stay in the workforce through working at home and job sharing and daycare and parent care in the workplace and those kinds of things. And one of them is using immigrant labor, both documented and undocumented. Are there businesses that benefit from low-cost immigrant labor? Well, certainly there are situations, no doubt, and, 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 and there's, there's no doubt some situations of abuse. It's certainly not a perfect system. That's why we need to reform it. But the vast majority of people in the construction industry are making the normal wage you would expect someone to make. There are some situations where wages are lower, and there's no doubt about that. There are some abuses of the system. There's no doubt about that. It's not perfect by any means. But the critical thing we need to do is fix it, but fix it in a way that we can still have access to these workers because we desperately need them. Is the uncertainty surrounding the future of immigration policy in the United States enough to worry businesses in Texas? 
Oh, absolutely. No, no question. very good example of that is this past year, there were a lot of raids going on uh, during shrimping season. And as a result, a lot of the workers that usually work on the shrimp boats didn't show up, and Texas basically lost most of its shrimp crop for the year. I mean, those kinds of things happen all the time, as you would anticipate in an economy like ours. There's a pretty good information network out there. And when raids increase or when people are unsure about the future, that sort of thing, then you have that type of situation where the workforce kind of disappears. The other piece that I think is important is if you look at the DACA kids again, and you come back to that particular group, and you take someone who has finished education, maybe higher education, they're very well qualified, they're doing a great job, but it's time to look at the future and and who you want to sort of build your business around, who you want to move into a training program or something like that. If you have a person who may not be here in a month or two, obviously you don't want to invest those resources. So that can cause people to make business decisions that are inefficient for the company, inefficient for their long-term prospects, simply because of the uncertainty that's associated with it. So as I've said, for a long time now, we've needed some significant immigration reform in this country, but it needs to be the type of reform that just recognizes the demographic realities of where we are right now. Whether you're Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, if you really look at it, this this is a situation that, apart from all the human concerns and, and the equity and all those issues about the DACA kids, if you really look at this whole issue, it's just math. It's, it's not politics. Ray Perryman is the head of the Perryman Group, an economic and financial analysis firm based in Waco. Thanks for your time, Ray. You bet. My pleasure. Interstate 35 is many things to many people. It is a vital thoroughfare. It has been an economic and social barrier. And nearly from its construction, it has been a source of frustration for many drivers stuck in traffic. As KUT's Jimmy Moss reports as part of our AT Explained series, I-35 has inspired a number of questions and even legends about its design and the people who made it. First of all, let's get this out of the way. No one who had any role in designing or constructing the upper decks of I-35 committed suicide, at least to anyone's knowledge. That legend has been floating around for decades. It is not true. Secondly, I-35 in the Austin area is not the deadliest stretch of highway in the United States or even Texas. It is, however, one of the most congested. One of the solutions to ease that congestion, conceived more than 50 years ago, inspired our question from Javier Palomares. So my question is, why was I-35 designed as a double-decker through central Austin instead of a wider highway? Excellent point. Why was it designed as a double-decker? Conventional highway construction would likely call for eminent domain and widening the roadway. As far as I know, there's not many cities that have a highway running through it that was designed in the 1960s and it's actually a double-decker. Additionally, back in the 60s, Austin was not nearly as big as it is now. So I guess I'm curious why. Here's where Javier begins to answer his own question. Additionally, I've noticed um, if you actually take a look, we can actually see the other side of the highway. So the footprint of I-35 is much smaller than other highways. For example, like I-10 to Central Houston is so much wider. At the heart of it, that's the reason. But to understand why there's so little leeway, we have to go back to the beginning of what, way back, was just called the Interregional. Part of the Interregional system built under the 1944 Highway Act America was trying to catch up to what World War II soldiers had seen in Germany, an interconnected freeway that could quickly transport troops and supplies and cars. By 1952, the first leg of the Interregional had sprouted in Austin, 
the stretch between Airport Boulevard and what was then 19th Street, now Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. By the late 50s, you could drive from the southern city limits at Slaughter Creek to the northern city limits without leaving the interregional. Remember, this was when highways were the future. They will take the -the over-the-road driver from city to city, coast to coast, at highway speeds, even through large population centers. By then, you could go through town without leaving the highway, but not without stopping. So Austin at the time had a railroad across 35. We're the only city, I believe, in the country that had a railroad stops on a freeway. That's Ben Alley Jr. He's the son of Ben Alley Sr., who served as assistant district engineer for the state highway department. Alley Sr. passed away in 2011. As it happens, the highway department realized that they were quickly running out of capacity. Alley Sr. was among those that took the lead on the project to get the interregional over the railroad and get more cars through central Austin. You know, they couldn't build 35 wider um, because of the easements. It would cost a fortune, and they would have had to purchase all the properties on either side of 35. And so building a three-lane highway on one pillar was an engineering feat. When the path for 35 was initially laid, planners assumed four lanes would be all they would ever need. That left Alley and the highway department one choice at the time, to go up. When the upper decks opened in 1975, they were the only lanes of that type in the country. In highway terms, this was a huge splash. Other futuristic metropolises like San Antonio and New Orleans tried to emulate. But one man's engineering treasure is another's trash. It cuts a horrible swath through the city of Austin. It is, at, at best, an ugly scar that runs right through uh, the, the, the city. That's State Senator Kirk Watson. For years, he's been trying to figure out how to reduce 35's visual and social impact while helping it move traffic. That roadway has probably been cussed by more people than uh, virtually any other segment of roadway in America. What is not in I-35's future, through that stretch at least, is more lanes. If tomorrow you had the money, if the state of Texas said, we've got the, the, the billions of dollars necessary to just go out and build you four new lanes of capacity, those would be congested very soon. That, that All the studies and all the, the, the experience across the country tells you that th- those would be congested almost immediately. And for now, the future of the interregional is not up, but down. We don't have right-of-way. You can't take out cemeteries. You can't take out downtown. You can't take out the University of Texas. So what do you do? Well, we don't want to go up because that adds to the scar. Instead, what this would do is it would put much of that below grade. There's a long-range plan to lower parts of 35 through downtown and beyond. One plan involves the removal of the upper decks completely and putting toll lanes under the existing frontage road. So. Would Ben Alley Jr. be upset if one of his dad's signature projects were removed? He knew early on that this wasn't going to be the big fix for I-35 traffic. You know, even after it was built, it was pretty obsolete. Benny Alley Sr. will have other legacies to lean on. He helped design Mopac, Loop 360, and the Pennybacker Bridge. The Alley family has their own memories, including very long drives. Whenever we traveled with him, he never took main roads. That's Allie's daughter-in-law, Helen Allie. 
it's very interesting because he, he worked on mainly main roads, but we always took back roads in Texas because he, he loved the countryside and the beauty of it. Not just in Texas, when we would travel anywhere out of state and, and far north, it was always back roads. You see, one of the lead engineers on some of Austin's Seminole highways did not prefer to drive on the freeway. Jimmy Moss, KUT News. Burglars stole a record number of firearms from gun stores last year, according to new data from the U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. ATF says more than 7,800 guns were stolen during burglaries from federal firearms licensees last year. 7,800 weapons. That was the most ever. And it compared to 2013, it was an increase of 134 percent. Alon Stevens is an investigative reporter with the Texas Standard, which is a statewide news show broadcast out of KUT. Hey, Alon. Hi, how's it going? I'm great. Thank you. So first of all, can I ask you to clarify the difference between a gun store burglary from a gun store robbery? Because there are far fewer robberies. Correct. So the difference between a burglary and a robbery is that, you know, a robbery is someone who uses force on an individual to take something from them. A burglary is more of your breaking and entering people coming in and simply taking guns uh, out of the store. You cover gun issues a lot. You had a big story last year about the increase in gun burglaries after Hurricane Harvey in the Houston area. You followed some ATF agents trying to track down these weapons. Is it possible that the chaos that followed Harvey and the burglaries that happened contributed to that increase? Every time there's a disaster nationally, the ATF is, in fact, concerned about burglaries that occur. People, unfortunately, use natural disasters as a avenue to take advantage of the low security situations, low police response, and steal guns. But, you know, when I talked to the ATF about just gun store burglaries in general, they actually said that they were facing a nationwide increase in the amount of gun stores. Since 2005 to 2015, there's been an additional 33,000 federally firearms licensed wow. gun dealers. So when you have this national increase of gun stores, of course, it's going to be accompanied by this national increase in gun store burglaries. How are these burglaries happening? One of the things that the ATF brought up is they said a lot of these stores that are cropping up don't have a lot of security, that many of them are in strip malls. So what happens is these criminals can cut through drywall. A lot of times what we're seeing more popularized now is kind of the smash and grab where they'll drive a car or a truck right in through a window and four or five guys will jump out and they will simply take a bunch of guns and load up as many as they can. And that's kind of indicative in some of these statistics because what you see is that not only was there an increase in burglaries, but the amount of guns that were being taken in each burglary were also increasing as well. And for people who've never been to a gun store, purchased a firearm or owned one, I mean, they can be quite expensive. They have a lot of value. Correct. And that value has a particular translation when it goes into the criminal black market. One of the reasons why these guns are sought after by criminals is because they don't have any paperwork attached to them. They have no background checks attached to them. So it creates this investigative black hole once they're involved in crimes. And criminals know this. So these guns are highly sought after because you could get a hold of this weapon and a 
essentially it's clean, it's untraceable. And for that reason, the ATF is super concerned when they investigate these FFL burglaries because they believe that these guns more than likely are going to be more readily used in criminal activities than, say, other guns. Have there been any efforts to require that people who are federally licensed to sell firearms have better security? So there's no laws that require gun stores to have better security. Uh, when I talked to the ATF special agent in charge in Houston, Fred Milanowski, he put the analogy that gun stores are kind of like banks in the 1970s, that right now they probably need to step up their game as far as security to stop having these burglaries occurring. Besides having your property stolen, there's not a terrible incentive to increase your security. A lot of any proposed regulation is kind of tamped down by this idea that, you know, we're starting to get into gun control territory. Alon Stevens is an investigative reporter with the Texas Standard, speaking to us about the federal government this week reporting the highest number of firearms stolen from gun stores and other federally licensed sellers of firearms ever in 2017. Thanks a lot. Great talking with you. Austin's housing prices continue to climb, and developers are using creative approaches to try and make home ownership a little more affordable, a little more accessible to people. As KUT's Saida Hassan reports, a new community of tiny homes is promising comfortable living in a small space. Alexa, turn on Casita. Martin Hoffman is giving me a demonstration of the technology built into one of his company's model homes. It's a tiny house spanning just 370 square feet, designed by the Austin-based company Casita. And so what happens is Alexa turns Casita on, the lights come up, turns on the radio. (laughs) I'm saying Alexa too many times. Uh, but there are a number of voice controls that we can use. Casita calls this model the independent. From inside, it looks like a luxury studio apartment. There's a bathroom, a kitchen, and a living area slash bedroom. Where we're standing is currently, it's an open living area. And if we simply pull on the sofa, it slides out into a queen-size bed. Hoffman is Casita's CEO. He says their homes are designed to meet the growing demand for housing in urban areas where vacant land is hard to come by. There's an idea here around how to utilize underused spaces in our communities and create greater housing supply uh, while, while not shortchanging people on anything that they want. They can still have a washer-dryer combo, still have a kitchen, still have a living area, and be able to live very comfortably in a small space. The company's homes range in price from $89,000 for a basic model to $129,000 for a premium tiny home. That's much less than the Austin Metro's median home price of more than $296,000. In the coming weeks, Casita will be shipping houses to one of the newest tiny home developments in the Austin area. At the future home of Constellation ATX, construction crews are making space for the 82 tiny homes that will make up the development. The site is just outside the city limits near South Austin, tucked between rows of larger single-family homes. Here, people will own their tiny home, but not the land it sits on. Lauren Carson is a development partner with Constellation ATX. We're doing a luxury, full amenity development with a really nicely landscaped pool area, 
There's going to be pagodas, barbecue areas, fire pits. Carson says building this tiny home community outside of Austin was a strategic choice. Actually, about 100 feet that way is Austin city limits. So we have full access to city utilities, but we don't have the zoning restrictions that come with being in the city. Restrictions that can make it tough to build something other than a traditional single-family home. Carson says Constellation ATX is responding to a growing demand for scaled-down, sustainable living. And they envision residents staying here long-term. Leases on the land here will be at least 30 years long. The goal is to try to avoid spikes in rent due to rising property values. Carson says that strategy has made banks more open to lending to tiny home buyers. We're working on a solution to bring a traditional mortgage to these tiny homes, and we're able to do that by offering the long-term leases, as well as the quality of the homes, so they feel comfortable that they'll be around for the term of the mortgage. While the Constellation ATX team is finding ways to work within the traditional housing market, Carson thinks there's more education to be done around tiny homes. She says city regulations haven't kept pace with newer types of housing. And a lot of those zoning restrictions are just left over from a previous time when, you know, people are thinking about, I don't want to have trailer parks in the neighborhood and all these little tiny houses. So what we're hoping to show here is that we can bring in a great community with a great feel and it doesn't necessarily diminish the neighborhood. In fact, we would say that it's going to add to the neighborhood. Inside the city limits, tiny home owners have to be sure their houses are in line with zoning and land use regulations. Jerry Rustoven is assistant director of Austin's planning and zoning department. I asked him to walk us through the rules. Tiny homes are just considered to be uh, residential, single-family residential. And so there are no specific zoning requirements that would apply to them. The city generally considers anything between 100 and 400 square feet to be a tiny home. Basically, Rustoven says these homes can be placed on any parcel of land zoned for residential use. On a single-family lot, tiny homes have to meet many of the same standards that larger houses do. Things like minimum lot size and the number of units allowed on the property. Multiple tiny homes can be placed on land that's zoned for a multifamily residence. In 2014, the Austin City Council asked staff to explore the rules governing tiny homes to find ways to make them easier to build. That effort didn't lead to any changes for tiny homes in the zoning code, but it did identify one specific constraint. If they are on wheels and they have a license plate attached to them, then they're considered to be a vehicle and not considered to be a home. Under the city's current zoning code, tiny houses on wheels are treated like RVs. They can be inhabited in certain areas that allow campground use, but if they're parked on a residential property, you can't actually live in them. So our requirement is that they be placed on a foundation in order to be considered a home. Rustoven says it's tough to pin down just how many tiny homes there are in Austin because they're not permitted any differently from a single-family home. He says proposed changes in Code Next, the ongoing rewrite of the city's land development code, could allow for tiny homes in more parts of Austin. Saida Hassan, KUT News. That is KUT Weekend for the third weekend of January 2018. Thank you so much for listening. This commercial-free podcast is brought to you by the fine folks who support local nonprofit journalism at KUT. Thank you if you're one of those individuals. We appreciate it. If you're not, you can join them at KUT.org. Hey, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast 
wherever you get your podcasts. You can tell people about it. Just direct them to weekend.kut.org. And you can email me any questions or comments, nathan at kut.org, or just ask me on Twitter. I'm at KUT Nathan. Our theme music is by RAC. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Nathan Bernier with KUT 90.5 and KUT.org. Thank you.